Our scripture reading this afternoon comes from a number of places in scripture. Uh, We are going to uh, search a wide swath of of scripture on this particular uh, doctrine. Our first scripture reading will come from uh, Psalm 88. Psalm 88, a uh, psalm of the sons of Korah. No, excuse me, um, my mistake, I was looking at the wrong uh, title. This is a mascal of of Ethan the Ezraite. Psalm 88, no, hold on. Sorry, now I am, I am on the right one. Uh, psalm of the Sons of Korah. I knew, I knew it was. Uh, psalm 88, a Psalm of the Sons of Korah, which the, the reason I pointed that out was that's the, uh, the same author of the psalm we just sung, Psalm 49, also of the Sons of Korah. So Psalm 88, a Psalm of the Sons of Korah, to the choir master, according to Mahalath Leanoth, a mascal of Heman, the Ezraite. O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave, or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness, or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless." Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. It's uh, certainly one of the darkest psalms of, of, the, uh, of the Psalter. Uh, and we recognize, of course, that the Psalms are fulfilled ultimately in Christ. They are the words of Christ as Christ himself drew near to death. Our next reading comes from Luke chapter 16. Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. The words of the Lord Jesus, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. 
The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Uh, Let's turn also now to Acts chapter 2. This might seem like a disparate selection of passages, but you might notice the common thread, which is uh, the, the view of death and the afterlife, which ties into our, our catechism reading this afternoon. So Acts 2, we'll read verses 22 through 36. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at... He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths, the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Uh, Let's turn to one last reading then, coming from 1 Peter chapter 3.
1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So far, the reading of God's Word. Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as the confession of this Christian church, as well as a summary of the Christian faith. And we find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day 16, the last part of that Lord's Day, as it works its way through the Apostles' Creed. We'll read question and answer 44. The question is, why is there added in the creed, He descended into hell? In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by His unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which He endured throughout all His sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this particular line in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell, uh, is by far the most controversial and disputed line of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, a couple of introductory words. First, this, this line was introduced into the official creed, uh, the creed at least that we use, quite late in Christian history. It was introduced sometime in the 700s, although there were many churches that used the Apostles' Creed many centuries earlier that sporadically here and there did add this line. Uh, The doctrine that this line affirms, as it was intended in the Creed, is actually very, very early. Uh, There are today some churches who have simply removed this line from the Apostles' Creed. Uh, There are others, like the Reformed tradition, that has reinterpreted it in a way that is different than its original intended meaning. And there remains still today a great deal of debate, uh, including within Reformed churches, as to what exactly does this line mean and how should we today interpret it. Uh, Now, as I mentioned, there have been different versions of the Apostles' Creed throughout history, some of which contained this line and some which did not. Uh, But the official Latin text, uh, which forms the basis for our English translation of the Apostles' Creed, uh, it uses the phrase uh, in Latin, descendit ad inferna. The critical word there is that word inferna. 
What does that word mean? Uh, In our version of the creed, it is translated as hell. He descended into hell. In almost any other translation that you would find, if you were to Google the Apostles' Creed, uh, you would probably find it translated as Hades, or the realm of the dead, or the domain of death. Uh, the term itself, inferna, the, the Latin term, literally means the, the lower places or the underworld. Uh, and, and it could sometimes, even in ancient Latin, could sometimes refer to hell, as in the place of the damned. Uh, or, uh, more often, it typically just referred to the underworld, the place of uh, the dead. Uh, In fact, the same is true even of the English word hell. Uh, Historically, uh, centuries ago, it used to have that same ambiguity, more often referring to just this this realm of the dead uh, and sometimes referring to what we now call hell, the place of, of the damned. Uh, So today now, if you look around at at different denominations, uh, you will find different translations of this creed. Uh, Some will say world of the dead, some say Hades, and some say hell. In order for us today then to appreciate this line in the creed, we want to make sure that we first understand what did it mean when it was added into the creed. When the early church confessed, he descended into hell. What did they uh, mean by that? Uh, we, can, we can know this with, with some confidence because we actually have commentaries from that time. The early church fathers commented upon the creed and explained it and uh, explained what it meant. Uh, the earliest commentary we have was written in sometime in the early 300s. Uh, and it draws a very close connection between Christ's burial and Christ's descent into hell. It sees those as two sides of the same coin. Uh, The way it was understood in that commentary, and and indeed by virtually all of the church fathers, was that Christ's body went into the tomb, into the grave, and Christ's spirit went into the realm of the dead, into uh, what is called Hades. And what is this? What is this realm of the dead? Uh, According to the the early church fathers, it is very simply that. It it is a place, a a spiritual place. We should not envision a a physical uh, place. It's more like a state, a spiritual state that is the domain of death. It's saying his body went into the grave, his spirit remained in that state of, of death. It was also understood by the church fathers that this was the place where where the Old Testament saints awaited the coming of of the Christ. I want to just stop and and explain that. Uh, The belief of of all of the earliest church fathers was that the Old Testament saints did not ascend upon their death immediately into heaven. Uh, They believed that uh, rather the Old Testament saints slept or, or waited in this realm of death until the coming of Christ after which they were taken into heaven. Uh, So it is only after his resurrection that the the, the souls of the Old Testament saints arose. That was the belief of the church fathers. Uh, Among among these uh, different church fathers, most of them then understood that, that the purpose of Christ descending into Hades was to liberate, to redeem these saints, and to bring them with him into heaven when he ascended. 
Uh, so one, one church father, Ignatius of, of Antioch, he lived uh, just after the time of the apostles. Uh, tradition has it actually that he was a student of the apostle John. Uh, and, and he was the, the pastor in Antioch. If you'll remember, Antioch was actually the second ever Christian congregation. So there was the church in Jerusalem, and then the next church to have been planted was the one in Antioch. Uh, so he was the pastor of, of Antioch uh, during or just after the time of the apostles. And he wrote this uh, about this doctrine. He says, The prophets of the Old Testament, being Christ's disciples, were expecting him as their teacher through the Spirit. And for this reason, he whom they awaited when he came raised them from the dead. It's that sense that, that Christ came, descended into Hades to redeem them, to liberate them from the dead. Uh, I'll give another example from uh, another pastor, Melito of Sardis. Uh, this is now in the middle of the second century, so around 150 AD. Uh, he says this in his Easter sermon. He says, All flesh therefore dwelt under the power of sin, every body under the dominion of death, for every soul was driven out from its house of flesh. Indeed, that which had been taken from the earth, a, a reference to the body, was dissolved again into the earth, and that which was given from God, namely the Spirit, was locked up within Hades. And he then goes on to say, Christ is the one who destroyed death, who triumphed over the enemy, who trampled Hades underfoot, and who bound the strong one and carried off man from there to the heights of heaven. Uh, so he too had this understanding that Christ descended into this, this place of death to redeem those who were there. Uh, there are many, many other church fathers who express uh, the same thing in their writings. Uh, Irenaeus, Origen, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Athenagoras. Uh, we go on listing all these church fathers that have written on this topic. Uh, there's one that's a, an exception, and, and it's worth looking at. This is St. Augustine, uh, where uh, most of us are fairly familiar with St. Augustine from his confessions or his city of God, uh, beautiful writings from this church father. Uh, and he had a bit of a unique understanding of this creed. Uh, I mentioned earlier this word inferna, uh, the Latin word can, it usually means this, this place of the dead. It can sometimes mean hell, the place of the damned. Uh, and uh, that, that you can imagine that naturally led to some conclusion. Did Christ, some people thought, actually descend into, into hell, the place where the damned go? And that's how Augustine interpreted this phrase. He, he openly admitted, I actually have no idea what this phrase means, uh, he says in his commentary. Because uh, he, he says it, it, uh, it is interpreted as a literal descent into hell, the place of the damned. But he says scripture doesn't teach that anywhere, that Christ went to the place of the damned. Uh, now, we have to understand for Augustine, he came from North Africa, not from Greece or Rome, uh, these, these centers of Greek uh, thinking. And, and he didn't share the same understanding. He's also 300 years later, uh, didn't share the same understanding of what what this underworld Hades or Sheol actually means. Uh, so, so he writes this. He, he admits he has no clue what this line actually means. He says, It is agreed by almost the entire church that the Lord loosed Adam from that prison of Hades 
a doctrine which must be believed to have been accepted for some reason from whatever source it was handed down to the church. But I, for my part, cannot see how Adam and Abraham, into whose bosom this pious beggar, uh, Lazarus, was received, how could he have been in these pains of hell? He says, perhaps those who are more able can explain this. So, Augustine was just perplexed. He interprets Inferna as hell and says, I have no idea what this line actually means. Uh, Certainly, he recognizes Adam and Abraham are said to have been there, uh, but why would they have been there? Why would they be in in hell? Uh, what, What he's missing is that the church, when they spoke of Adam being in Hades or Abraham being in Hades, are not talking about hell. They're talking about the world of death, the state of death. Now, before we, we, we move on from the church fathers or, or dismiss the, the idea entirely, we should recognize there is actually some scriptural basis from which they are working uh, in holding this belief. Uh, it's noteworthy, as Augustine says, that almost the entire church uh, held to this belief. And the reason they did is because of how Scripture often speaks of death. Uh, The Hebrew word that's used in the Old Testament, you've seen it many times, is this word Sheol, uh, which, as best as we can tell, refers to the realm of death. Uh, You can find this word all over the Old Testament. Uh, We read some examples from Psalm 88. Uh, and, And Sheol is is more than just the grave. Some take it to be just the grave or a a colorful way of talking about the grave. But it's more because it's a place of spirits. It's where souls are said to have gone. Uh, Isaiah 14 uh, talks about ghosts, uh, spirits dwelling there in Sheol. Though, of course, you have to be careful. Isaiah is speaking in poetic, prophetic uh, language. Uh, but, but importantly, we want to recognize that, that this Sheol uh, was evidently seen as the immediate destination of the soul after death, both for the righteous and the unrighteous. This is what perplexed Augustine as well. Uh, what are the righteous doing in, in this place? It's not hell. It's not the place of the damned. If you remember the story of Joseph, uh, when Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery, and then his brothers came and took his coat uh, torn uh, and, and covered with the blood of a pig, and they said, I don't know what happened to this. Uh, and, and, of course, Jacob interprets that as, as Joseph has, has died. Uh, and then in the years later, when, when they're coming to, to Egypt, uh, and then Joseph asks for Benjamin, he says, I want to see my brother Benjamin, uh, if you ever come here again. And so the brothers go back and they tell their dad this, this uh, point. And, and Jacob says this in Genesis 42, he says, My son Benjamin will not go down with you, for his brother is already dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring my gray hairs down with sorrow to Sheol. Now stop there, and the important thing to recognize is Jacob himself saw his destination after this life as being in Sheol. Uh, Likewise, many of the Psalms speak in this way. It's why we read from Psalm 88. They speak of Sheol as the place they would expect to go if God should let them perish. Now, to be sure, 
the Old Testament saints did have the expectation and the confidence that their bodies uh, would eventually rise again. And they had the confidence, likewise, that God would hold on to them even in death and ultimately redeem them from death. We sang about that also in in Psalm uh, 49. Or you have Psalm 73 uh, that, that talks about being redeemed from Sheol. Psalm 73 Verse 24 says, Afterwards you will receive me into glory. But you have to ask, is that an immediate expectation or is that an ultimate expectation? When you read uh, the the Psalms overall, you think the immediate expectation is not uh, glory. It It is this place of death. Uh, an example of this from the New Testament in John 11, verse 24, Jesus says to Martha, uh, he says, your brother Lazarus will rise again. And, and Martha says back to him, uh, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Uh, her expectation, her hope was set on the last day, not on, on her brother being in heaven. Uh, Overall, the Psalms then seem to suggest that the immediate expectation of the saints uh, was different uh, than the one we have now. Give a few examples. Psalm 6, verse 5. In death, there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Uh, Psalm 30, verse 9. uh, The psalmist says, What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Or Psalm 115, verse 17, uh, says, The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. Uh, You do not get the impression that they expected immediately to be uh, raised. At least, it's not prominent in, in the Psalms. Now, that changes very dramatically In the New Testament, Uh, in the New Testament age, you have someone like Paul saying in Philippians 1, verse 23, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Or 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, he says, If we depart from the body, we go home to be with the Lord. A very different, prominent expectation that is there. Uh, Now, some of you who who would know your Bibles very well, you might point out there are a couple of exceptions even here in the Old Testament. Uh, For example, Enoch, uh, the grandson of Adam, uh, he never died. He was taken up in his body directly to heaven. Uh, A similar example is Elijah. Elijah was taken up in that chariot of of fire, uh, taken up in his body into heaven. Uh, Both of those cases, though, are, however you interpret them, exceptional cases because their bodies were also taken into heaven. Uh, That's not the norm. Uh, For most of the saints, their bodies slept in in the earth. Uh, You might argue the same with uh, with the body of Moses. Now, we know Moses died and was buried. Uh, And we're told in Deuteronomy that God himself was the one who, who buried him. But there's this old prophetic tradition uh, that, that the New Testament book of Jude actually upholds uh, that there were angels that fought for Moses' body uh, that it may be taken into heaven. Uh, that's a, a tradition that, that the New Testament also affirms in the book of Jude, that, that there's, there's truth to that. 
Uh, so the, the case of Moses may also be exceptional, which might explain why you see Moses and Elijah in the Mount of Transfiguration. These two in their bodies, unlike the rest of the Old Testament saints. Uh, so what happened, whatever happened with Enoch, Elijah, and possibly Moses uh, was at least not the expectation of, of the rest of the saints uh, in, in that they did not expect their bodies to be taken up into heaven. Uh, here we also want to pay attention to this parable of, the, uh, of Lazarus and the rich man. It's particularly uh, interesting on this topic. Uh, Because it's there that Lazarus is said to have been carried away to Abraham's bosom while the rich man was in torment. Uh, Now, for us in in, in this age, it's very easy for us to simply read that as, as heaven and hell. Uh, Lazarus was taken to heaven, um, the rich man was taken to hell. But that, does not, that, that is not what's actually being referred to there. Um, there's no fixed chasm between heaven and hell that, that we're ever told about. Uh, but it's mentioned here in, in this parable. This is actually a reference to the underworld, uh, referring to a common conception that Jews had in that day of Sheol. Now, bear in mind, it's a parable. It's an illustration. Uh, We should not take it as a textbook. Uh, This is Jesus describing the afterlife. It's an illustration. Uh, But it's using the Jewish conception of the underworld, which they understood to be divided into these two different sides with a fixed chasm in between. There is the bosom of Abraham on the one side, and, and there is a place of torment on the other. The righteous would go to be there in the bosom of Abraham. The wicked would go to be in in the side of torment. Uh, this is very, very similar to the Greek view of the underworld, uh, which, which they called Hades, which was also divided into two compartments. There was Elysium, the golden fields. If you've ever seen the movie Gladiator, at the very end, uh, Russell Crowe is walking through that golden field. Um, and that's not a view of heaven. That's a view of Elysium, the underworld, the side of the underworld that is destined for the righteous. Now, of course, that's Greek. It's Greek mythology. Uh, But the Greek view of the underworld was similar to the Jewish view in Jesus' day. Uh, So there is is on the one side uh, this bosom of Abraham or Elysium. And on the other side, there is this place of torment that is called Tartarus. Uh, Again, that's a Greek term for, for the Greek view of the underworld, but it's a term scripture uses to speak of a place of, of torment uh, and a place of waiting for, for final judgment. Uh, now again, we want to bear in mind that when we look at a, a parable like this, it can be very perplexing to us uh, to bear in mind that this is a, an illustration, a parable. Um, it should not be seen as a physical place. Uh, if Sheol is a, a place of death for souls, for spirits, It's not a physical place. It is a spiritual reality and might better be described as the state of death rather than a place of of death. Uh, But but in any case, what we're looking at here in this parable is the underworld, not heaven, not the throne of God. Uh, And it's very parallel to this Greek idea of the underworld, um, which, which we see, by the way, that Scripture even calls this place Hades, it uses this Greek term uh, with all the associated Greek concepts, 
The Bible very freely uses that term to speak of, of the afterlife. Uh, this is also important because when Jesus said, perhaps you remembered, when Jesus said to the thief on the cross, uh, what were his words to the thief? Today you will be with me in paradise. What is this, this paradise that Jesus is referring to? Uh, the Greek word paradise, the word paradise is, is simply a, a transliteration of a Greek word. Uh, the Greek word simply means a garden. And the church fathers understood paradise as not to have been heaven, but to have been this place in the underworld. Uh, one of the church fathers uh, says, if anyone's ever heard of Elysium, again, that's the Greek concept, uh, then they will know what is meant by the term paradise. Uh, and we know it can't have been heaven because Jesus says to Mary, when, when he rises from the dead and Mary clings to him, what does he say to her? He says, do not cling to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. So the question is, where was Jesus before his ascension? Well, this is what the church is referring to when it speaks of uh, he descended into Hades. Uh, His soul waited in death, in that place or that state of death. He was received into glory. He ascended to the Father after his resurrection. Uh, Interestingly, Ephesians chapter 4 even speaks about Christ leading a host of captives in his train as he goes to to the Father, uh, which which the the early church understood as as the Old Testament saints who he took with him to to heaven. This is also what Peter uh, appears to be referring to in Acts chapter 2. He says in verse 24, God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. And then he quotes Psalm 16, where, where David says, You will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. And then then, uh, Peter goes on to say, obviously David was speaking prophetically here because David did die. David was buried. He did uh, go to the place of death and his body decayed. Uh, So he says David is is prophesying here of, of Christ. And he says then in Acts 2, verse 30, Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn an oath uh, to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." Well, that's what the early church, when the Apostles' Creed was first written and confessed by the the early church, that's what they are referring to when they speak of the descent into Hades. It's Christ waited until God raised him from the dead, and then he ascended into heaven. Uh, This is also what Peter appears to be speaking of in the uh, very, very obscure passage that we read from 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, There are many different interpretations of this passage, but the early church almost universally interpreted it according to this descent into Hades. Uh, So, 
Turning again to 1 Peter 3, it says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So see the uh, put to death in the flesh, made alive in the Spirit. There's the, the contrast between body and spirit. In which, in, in which spirit he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Uh, what is this prison? that's being referred to, the early church understood that as the prison of death, a death that held those who went to it. Uh, That seems to be the most natural understanding of that passage. Uh, Christ, his body being put to death, descended into Hades in his spirit and proclaimed the gospel to those who were there, that is, redemption to those who had been waiting for him in faith and judgment to those who had rejected him in former days, even as far back as Noah. And from there, Peter says, Jesus has now gone into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. Uh, Perhaps this is what Paul is also referring to in Philippians 2, uh, where he says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's the the, the biblical foundation from which the early church was working as it confessed this line, he descended into Hades. Very obscure and very difficult to make sense of all of these passages. So the question before us then is, what are we to make of it as a Christian church today? Uh, First of all, we need to recognize that it's very difficult very difficult to describe in any kind of detail what exactly was the expectation of the saints in the Old Testament before the coming of Christ. Uh, Scripture simply does not give us much detail. Uh, Trying to pin down exactly what were their expectations is very difficult. Uh, The temptation uh, is often for those who divide on this issue to end up emphasizing one set of passages over against the other. Uh, The most that we can say with any sort of confidence is that the, the Old Testament saints absolutely believed that God would hold on to them and would redeem them from the power of death. You see that uh, very clearly. While at the same time, they did not seem to expect that to happen immediately. Uh, But they knew they were safely in the hands of God. Uh, The pictures that we have of Sheol and Hades, uh, such as this one that comes from Lazarus and the rich man, uh, are still only pictures. They are illustrations of spiritual realities. We should not think of Sheol or Hades as some literal place. When you look at medieval paintings and early church paintings, you see Christ literally breaking into this uh, place, bending the bars of death open. And and perhaps those are also meant to be taken symbolically. Uh, But we should not think of Sheol or death in that way. It is a spiritual uh, reality, a spiritual state. Uh, the, The Old Testament saints, their bodies went to the grave. Their bodies did not descend to some place somewhere. Uh, It it is describing death in colorful terms. 
Secondly, we should comment on the Heidelberg Catechism's interpretation of this line in the Creed. Uh, In the days of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church had added to this doctrine, this concept of Hades, uh, many, many more things with with no scriptural basis whatsoever. So they added a limbus and phantom, a, a special sheol for, 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 for babies who had died in, in infancy. It's a concept that's nowhere found in, in scripture. Uh, they, they added purgatory, the place of suffering to which we go to pay off our temporal debt, also a concept you don't find in scripture. Uh, they added, uh, of course, many other accoutrements like uh, that, that you can you can pay to take the souls of your loved ones out of of purgatory sooner. Uh, And and they added on top of that, they divided hell into multiple different levels of hell, so certain sins get you to certain levels. Again, far beyond what Scripture teaches. So by the time of the Reformation, uh, it, it was obvious that the Roman church had gone far, far beyond any scriptural basis. And many of the reformers, very understandably, just threw the whole concept out altogether. Uh, They were very uncomfortable with this whole concept of of Hades, given what the Roman church had added into it. Uh, So there were differences of opinion among the reformers. Uh, Martin Luther continued to maintain that ancient doctrine of Hades as the early church had understood it. Lutherans today still confess that, uh, that the Old Testament saints waited there. Uh, There were a number of other reformers that, that... held on to that as well. Uh, John Calvin and a number of other reformers rejected the idea altogether, or at least said, we don't have the conviction, the scriptural basis to stand on that with, uh, with conviction. Uh, so, uh, and, and there were other reformers that simply erased the line from the creed altogether, saying, hey, it was added late anyways, so let's just get rid of that line in the creed. Uh, What the authors of the catechism do is they take a middle approach to this uh, issue. They walk a bit of a middle line. The catechism neither rejects the old traditional view nor embraces it. And instead of just throwing out the line of the creed altogether, uh, what the catechism does is interprets it, reinterprets it in a way that you can at least confess it with confidence. Uh, So it it takes it, uh, it makes it, means something different, but it makes it allows you to confess the creed in a way that you can at least say with confidence that this is truth. Uh, so it keeps the creed the way it is. It maintains that word hell, whereas other translations have, have moved it back to Hades to reflect the original uh, intention. Uh, but it interprets this line as Jesus having suffered the wrath of God in hell, or, or the wrath of hell on the cross, because at least that's something the church can universally, all Christians can universally agree upon. And what the catechism teaches there is, is absolutely true and dear and precious to the Christian faith. Uh, it is one of the best summaries of, of what we called last week penal substitutionary atonement. That is, that Christ experienced the full weight of the wrath of God in our place. Uh, so the catechism says, In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, 
but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. So the Catechism uh, reinterprets this uh, to, to refer back to Christ's death on the cross, uh, and then it just simply chooses to say nothing at all, neither for or against this concept of, of Hades. Uh, now, if you jump forward uh, uh, several decades, a uh, hundred years almost, uh, the Westminster Confession, which our, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters uh, use, uh, they took a slightly different approach. The Westminster Confession was written uh, in, in 1646, so almost a century after the Heidelberg Catechism, and it shows a bit more of, of, of measured, careful reflection on the creed a hundred years later, where, where some of the uh, Roman Catholic accoutrements are at least a little bit of a distance away. Uh, and the Westminster Confession restores this original intended meaning of the creed uh, and, and confesses it as Hades. He descended into Hades. And if you read the Westminster Confession, it interprets it simply as the realm of death or the state of death. Uh, as it happens in our church, you can actually find both uh, understandings uh, in, in our book of praise. In hymn 1, we, we confess that Christ descended into hell. Uh, and, and if we sing that, we must understand it the way that the catechism uh, interprets it uh, as Christ experiencing the wrath of hell. We do not confess that Christ descended into the place of the damned. Uh, in him too, uh, we adopt the, the Presbyterian approach, recognizing that there's, that's legitimate as well, uh, saying he simply descended into death's domain. So there's freedom uh, here. It is a very, very difficult issue to sort out what did Scripture teach, especially in the Old Testament, about the afterlife. Uh, and, and we should all be cautious and humble as we seek to understand these things and, and also dialogue with other uh, Christians about these things. Uh, it is crucial to remember these are spiritual realities of which Scripture speaks actually very, very little. Uh, we do not want to go in the direction of the Roman Catholic Church uh, and, and invent this, this sort of elaborate system and explanation of the afterlife that goes beyond what Scripture gives us to stand upon. Uh, and, and much less would we want to impose that upon the consciences of, of others with practices like indulgences by which you pay your way out and, and things like that. At the same time, we do want to honor and recognize what a significant thing it is that Christ did enter the realm of death for us. Uh, what a significant thing actually happened there in the death of Christ. Uh, by entering the state of death, Christ broke its power for you and I who belong to him. Uh, it's because of the perfect sacrifice and death, because the curse of sin is, is death, because of the death of Christ that the Old Testament saints stand before the throne of God and that that is also our expectation today and that both us and them, there will await the final resurrection of our bodies. It's because of the death of Christ uh, that when we sing the Psalms, uh, particularly those that mention death and Sheol, 
that we get to sing them knowing that our hope is greater than their hope, that our hope is more immediate, that our hope is more prominent than their hope. Uh, Yes, our bodies will still go to the grave, and that sorrow does remain with us, and it is a a sorrow. Uh, Yet we have the joy and the confidence with the Apostle Paul uh, of knowing that when we die, our spirits go to be with the Lord because death has been conquered in the death of Christ. We go home to be with our Lord. And that's what this line in the creed is all about. Christ went through death to break the curse and power of death for all who came before and for all who would come after. Uh, The reality is, and and this is our proclamation to the world as well, uh, death is the reality for every human being who's ever lived. There's there's no 1% when it comes to death. Uh, The rich, the poor, the wise, the foolish, the weak, the strong, all shall die. It's what Psalm 49 really uh, highlights there. There's no escaping that truth. But for those who belong to Christ... Death does not have the last word. Death cannot hold on to us. Uh, The bars of death, so to speak, have been broken. Uh, It has swallowed what it could not secure. Its curse is gone because God himself has gone there for us and gone out of there for us. So because of Christ, we know our spirits will not sleep when we die. Our spirits will not be locked up in a place of death. And that means also our bodies, as we'll see next week in the Apostles' Creed, also our bodies, just as Christ's body has risen, so too our bodies will one day rise to be reunited with our spirits as they wait in heaven. Amen.